Guys, welcome to this episode of the Street Cop Training Podcast. I'm your host, founder, CEO of Street Cop Training, here with our constitutional policing case law expert, Zach Miller, via Zoom from the great state of Virginia, or at least once was the great state of Virginia. Uh, it seems like things are okay still, but like I don't know. It's not bad. We have, uh, dis- yeah, it's not bad. Yeah, that's good. You're just always so stoic with your responses. There's, there's, there's worse places to be. No question about it. <laughs> Massachusetts. <laughs> Massachusetts, Minnesota. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, you know, it's been a, a few weeks since we've gotten in here and done some case law stuff. What are we going into today to start with? Um, I got a New Jersey case that came out uh, not long ago. Uh, Might have been a couple of days ago. I don't have the exact date, but. Um, yeah, the 16th of September. Yeah, okay. Yeah. A couple of days ago, a few days ago. Uh, Boston. State- oh, so we're doing Boston on this state- one? Yeah, Boston. Yeah. Is that the, the this is the ID case? Yeah, yeah. You know what's interesting about this is I, I wonder if they're going to appeal this one up to the Supreme Court of the state because we have pre-existing case law that contradicts this. They may have their own new rules on this. About, yeah, whether we can... About passengers ID, being ID in the car, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so we had... Um, it was a case where the female driver was... The, the stop was because the female driver was suspected of having a suspended license, and sure enough, she did. So she got arrested and she had a adult male passenger who the officers asked if he had a license. And he said, no, he did not have a license. And then subsequently they ended up um, demanding his ID, like his name and date of birth. I think is that how, I think that's how they determined who he was and he had warrants too. Um, so they arrested him and found some drugs in his pocket, I believe was the, the scenario yeah. and subsequently he was i was sentenced to a pretty steep prison sentence i think uh seven years or three and a half years patrol uh parole eligibility or something like that and i the only reason I, I know this i really haven't done a lot of homework on it just yet is that i uh was you know essentially reading this last night while i was boarding a flight home from chicago so i've got the gist of it i actually took some notes screen shotting things on my phone i know people are going to want to uh, really get into it. And I'm actually pulling up some additional case law that contradicts what they have ruled in this in this setting. So as you begin to go over your analysis of what they have now saying, and by the way, there's there's prosecutors' offices here that have already released statements saying you can't just voluntarily request ID of a passenger in a car without something. And I think the the uh the, the real elephant in the room is what is something? They haven't given us an example of what something is. Yes. And that's, so in this case, the initial request for ID or his license was, was okay. The court said, because it was related to the reason for the stop um, because the driver had been arrested. So it was reasonable to ask the passenger if he had a license so that he could take the car. And there was actually also some kids in the car. Um, so that initial request for the ID was reasonable because it was related in scope to the reason for the stop and what was going on during the stop. But once he said he was not licensed and therefore not eligible to drive the vehicle away, the court said there was no further reason to inquire about his identity. It had nothing to do with the remaining for the reason for the stop. Uh, so they, so when he turned over his ID, but I think he, again, he gave his name and date of birth. That's what caused him to get arrested. Uh, and that's where the illegality occurred. That's that request or demand. It's kind of hard to tell whether it was request or demand, but that second 
uh, inquiring about his ID. That's where the problem was. Mm-hmm. So what they you clearly don't need reasonable suspicion to to ID a passenger, um, but but it sounds like it's going to be similar to your rule where ordering the passengers to exit on a traffic stop requires something. Uh, what is it called? Heightened suspicion. Heightened caution. What they call heightened it. caution. Heightened caution. It's less okay. than reasonable suspicion. Yeah. Yes. It's clearly less than RS. And, and of course, this is under the the New Jersey State Constitution. Yeah, so I this isn't in there. Yeah, this is not any other state. This doesn't apply to. Um, so, some kind of heightened caution or heightened degree of suspicion is required to ask a passenger for his ID on a motor vehicle infraction stop is what I took away from this case. You know, I'm, I'm going to jump in here real quick as we explore that case a little bit. Um, Hornberger versus the American Broadcasting Company was a, I, and again, I don't know if it was, it's actually a civil suit, but it came out with a lot of case law and was used for a lot of interpretation regarding this exact topic. So Hornberger versus American Broadcasting Company was actually a lawsuit filed by the Jamesburg Police Department in the late 90s after they had been caught on 2020 doing some dumb police things, right? This is... Yeah, yeah I, did, I read ago. a little bit about this case. Oh, right? it's a wild one, man. And, and and again, it comes down to like, you know, that's what you get when you don't train anybody, right? That's what you get. And I'm not saying that now. This is 23 years ago in Jamesburg. I know the chief over there. They're great people now. Um, you believe me, they've come to training. They're good. They're good dudes. Mm-hmm. Uh, things have certainly changed dram- uh, dramatically at that agency. Now, it says... We have recently addressed the propriety of a police officer's request for identification from a driver of a car. In State versus Sirianni, which was interesting, uh, same thing applied, but it wasn't the motor vehicle stop setting. It was more of a criminal stop where they requested ID. But it says, we declined to adopt a per se rule that before requesting identification from a person who is lawfully in public place, police are constitutionally required to have a reasonable suspicion the person has committed a crime. We emphasize that fear inquiries require no constitutional justification and do not constitute a detention in the constitutional sense. So they go on to cite additional cases. Hold on a second. <laughs> Here's it continued. It says, uh, on the other hand, People versus Jackson, the courts held that officers may ask passengers in cars stopped for motor vehicle violations for identification without any reasonable suspicion of criminal conduct. And they're citing Johnson versus State of Florida. They're, they're, they're reaching to other states, State versus Jones out of Kansas, People versus O'Neill out of Colorado. So they're reaching out, they're looking at what other states said, and they're applying here in New Jersey. And Sirianni uh, is this case that they're talking about. It says right here, New Jersey courts deny defendants request the police must have RES to ask for ID. Despite the well-settled principle that measures reasonableness of official action against the totality of the circumstances, defendant nevertheless suggests a per se rule before requesting identification for a person who is lawfully in a public place. Police are required, a constitutional required to have a reasonable suspicion that the person has committed a crime. No such litmus paper test exists in this state or any other jurisdiction surveyed. On the contrary, the rule is that the police request for identification does not by itself constitute a seizure detention within the meaning of the Fourth Amendment. Sirianni continued, now they cite cases out of New Jersey talking about, uh, here's State versus Stampone. This is 2001 when a police officer approached an individual in a parked car, engaged him in voluntary conversation, and made a general request for identification. We have State versus Egan. We see no reason to depart from the general rule that the request for identification does not, and in itself, transform a field inquiry into a Terry stop. And, um, they go into the Maryland Davis Supra here. And what's interesting is I think we're starting to, and again, I, I didn't read it enough to give a complete analysis and, and volley the conversation uh, in a sense with you that makes, you know, that, that I could, I, you know, be, I would consider to be super intelligent. But one thing I could tell you is I think what they were talking about in this new case, Boston, was the motor vehicle stop setting. 
was the variable from everything that's, else. That's the difference. Yes. We have uh, state versus Cardi here in the state of New Jersey. And I, and I know you agree with this. And again, we're progressive in some sense where a lot of stuff we get six years before the U.S. Supreme Court catches up where we need to have a reasonable suspicion of criminal activity to even ask for consent to search in the motor vehicle setting only. Right. And they declined to extend that to anything else. Uh, you would not need reasonable suspicion in any other setting outside of the motor vehicle law. And we have a case called State versus Domish. I think it's D-O-M-I-C-Z or something like that, where state police go to this guy's house. They think it's a marijuana grow. Uh, he invites them in. They request consent. And and he they search the house and find a marijuana grow in the basement. He comes back saying they didn't have reasonable suspicion. The court said, in the founding era today, when we have to worry about terrorism, and I don't, we don't want to hinder our ability to go into things like that and get consent, maybe uncover terrorists. So although you may want protections for drug abusers or drug users or drug growers, we're not going to extend that because it's a very important tool for police officers to be able to get consent. And you know, consent's a very powerful tool in law enforcement. It's extremely powerful. When you understand the principles of it and you know how to apply it and you use it a lot and employ it, I mean, Dude, I don't know if there's a more powerful tool for a law enforcement officer than actually getting lawful, legitimate consent because, I mean, it really just, it saves a lot of time. Um, it resolves a lot of crime. Uh, there's many issues. And, 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 you know, a lot of things can be saved with consent. Scopes of search, right? <clears throat> we didn't know if that allowed us to go this far in some states or whatever it may be. Well, cool. Don't rely on what you had. You can always go a little bit further when asking for consent, permission to do that. And you'd be surprised how many people will give consent, even when they're engaged in criminal activity. You know, I'm not going to go into the details and psychology of why that occurs, but as long as you're following uh, what your state dictates regarding a good lawful consent, and I give this to people in class all the time, and I, I'm going to let you talk after this because I don't want to keep rambling on, a great way to find what good consent is, probably a quick shortcut. If you go into casetext.com, and again, we have no fiduciary interest. We have no association with that company. They just make a good piece of software that's good for legal research. I, Zach, that's your favorite piece of... Um, so as far as the value, are they how inexpensive it is? Yes. It's not yeah, as good as Westlaw or Lexus Nexus, but they are very expensive. Yeah. How expensive is Westlaw or Lexus Nexus? I mean, it depends on what kind of license you get, but I mean, thousands of dollars a month. Whoa, are they really that much? Depending wow. on, I mean, how many attorneys you have signed up. It's, it's expensive, but they're very good tools. Yeah. Um, casetext.com. Uh, if you search in your state, voluntary consent to search, that language there will reveal probably top 25 times that it was brought into your court system. And there was a ruling on what they considered to be, uh, and, and every state varies just a little bit. You know, some, some states, um, you know, voluntary and knowingly are generally the overall. Would you agree with that? Um, voluntary is the Fourth Amendment standard. Knowing is um, not a Fourth Amendment standard, but many states do have a knowing requirement. We actually under state law, we throw in an, an additionally intelligent in New Jersey. So when they say intelligent, it means look, we don't want you getting consent from a nine-year-old, right? right? But yes. they would look at a, at a seventeen-year-old who has been through the legal system many times, knows the whole thing, uh, has experience. You can get consent from a seventeen-year-old. There is no eighteen year age requirement. I've never even read of such thing. No, there's not. There's no yeah. age, there's no magical age where you have to be old enough to give consent. It's totality of the circumstances. Yeah. I, like people have asked me, hey, can I get consent from somebody who has used illicit narcotics? And the, the response is, it depends. It de I think we've talked about this before. How intoxicated is that person? Mm -hmm. Is the person normal 
when they intox- when they ingest some kind of intoxicant. Right? I mean, you, you could talk to people, you know, you'd be these parents. Like, my, I didn't know my kids were, were using, abusing pills. That was the normal for them. You know, get people doing eight bags of heroin a day to function. Somebody like that, if you had like a crash and you want to get consent for blood and they were high, you could get consent. But I'd make sure that, especially with some kind of toxicology report, that you showed that they were documenting it in some way to show that, yeah, although this guy had eight bags of heroin in his system, um, he was normal. And this is, he wasn't slurring his speech. He was just acting like a normal person. You could ask some questions to verify his normalcy. You know, I mean, that's, that's kind of uh, some good advice there. So without, with that being said, let's continue on. Um, so, so the, the takeaway with uh, Boston, it sounds to me like is that, you know, like you said, if this is just a motor vehicle infraction stop where the drivers committed some motor vehicle infraction in order to even ask any of the passengers for their ID, you've got to have some kind of particular reason like it's got to be somehow related to the stop um, or you're developing some kind of suspicion that the passenger is involved in unlawful activity but just merely asking uh you can't do that and that's more than the fourth amendment requires so again this is just under new jersey state law okay i'm going to jump in here and just throw a few things out there so first of all i don't think this tactic changes the game tremendously i think it's few and far between where somebody actually who was really 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 wanted would volunteer their information. Um, I think that you can still focus on passenger side motor vehicle, I'm sorry, passenger motor vehicle infractions like ashing out the windows, a violation of the state of this littering, uh, not wearing your seatbelt. And I think you guys can use the tools and resources that we have, uh, namely the RAS checklist, which you can get if you uh, email streetcaptrain.gmail.com, ask for the commonly requested documents folder. Any law enforcement person we verify can have that. You got to get verified. So if you're sending that email in, please, please send it from your work email address or send the picture to verify you are. We are not giving these documents out to defense teams, defense attorneys, although they're completely legal. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll keep our stuff to ourselves. We want to know. We don't want to give everybody, and, and again, high-end high criminals know this stuff. The, the other thing I want to say re, uh, regarding that is, you know, people get so worked up over this stuff when things happen. It may not be over yet. It's at the appellate division. It was published. It was appellate but they may be appealing it up to the Supreme Court of New Jersey to hear it again. And there's not uncommon for New Jersey Supreme Court to overrun and overturn the previous, th- it happens all the time. I would say, what do you think? I mean, can we even put a number on percentage-wise when something goes from appellate to Supreme and it gets overturned 50-50? Well, it's, it, it depends on the issue and, and how uh, well-established the law is at the time. So I'm sure it varies from state to state. Regarding this this topic, it's a little vague, all right. So that it because we're looking at the language in Sirianni, they actually talk about that. They do not; they are not addressing the motor vehicle setting. But again, guys, it's not hard for police officers to use the RES checklist and begin to develop reasonable suspicion. If somebody is wanted and is scared of it, you're just going to have to document why you had that request for their identification. Maybe it doesn't rise to the level of reasonable suspicion, which they've said you don't need to do that. We need something. Just like getting somebody out of a car, we need something. So getting trained and skilled at recognizing what something is, using your RAS checklist, the resources that we have. If I had a warrant for my arrest and I was being pulled over by the police, and I've, I've been in law enforcement for quite some time, people are generally nervous. Something is not going to be right. And you've got to understand what that is and be able to document it for that. And it's still, you can't compel it unless you have reasonable suspicion. But 
even for that document request, not hard to do. So everybody gets so worked up, they're getting wild about it. And I just want to remind everybody, it's only in the motor vehicle setting. You're allowed to still request identification outside of the motor vehicle setting. Even a parked motor vehicle in Sirianni was considered and deemed to be okay. So it would have to be, I'm guessing, a moving motor vehicle violation. You'd have to be right. pulled over by the police, be detained, and then be put in a position to be asked voluntarily without anything else to relinquish your identification uh, at your at your honor, at, at your pleasure. By the way, again, I really don't feel like this changes much. You know what I mean? If you really think about it, this is not going to have a large scale impact. Guys and girls just need to know the existing case law and what that means. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I don't want to ramble on. What's your thoughts on that? Are we on the same page, me and you, uh, Zach? Miller? Yeah, I don't think it's really that that big of a game changer. I mean, you just need to have some reason, um, some suspicion, if you will, about the driver, the passenger and his involvement in criminal activity, or his ID needs to be like in this case, you know, you have a, you don't have a, you don't have a lawful driver anymore and you're looking to get the vehicle off the roadway. We can certainly ask occupants for ID then to see if they can drive the car away. Yeah. You know, some of the, some of the variables that they talked about, I actually have screenshots. It's funny. I'm glad we have it for, um, for this, uh, from last night when I was reading through it, some guy sent me, said, Hey, we just, this just came out. I said, okay, well, I was teaching in Chicago. So uh, if it came out on Friday, I didn't get the update on it yet. I'm going to go into my gallery here, my screenshots on my phone. And I'm going to tell you, uh, some things that I screenshot that I thought were important. And, and again, even though they talk about the demanding part of this and the language being used, there was also some interesting stuff that came out of this. They actually said that they didn't play the MVR video during the trial. They redacted it for some reason. And then they, I think they said that it was not completely consistent with the testimony of the officers once it was brought right. back to the appellate division level and they said, we need to see the video. So I still think there's a lot of uh, unanswered questions. And, and the fact of the matter is, you know, I don't know what the, I'm not here to make a subjective analysis of the actions of the police officers. I don't know their level of training and I wasn't there and I haven't seen the video. What I do want to say is being very familiar with case law is a paramount thing for all police officers. You have to know what the law says. You have to know when you're taking action, why you're taking that action and and how far you can go with that action and what supports that in case that action is challenged and vice versa. So I, I saw a lot of language with like, it says we conclude the officers demand to see the defendant's ID after the defendant advised did not possess the driver's license, indeed it altered the analysis and requires reversal of the defendant's conviction. And, and unfortunately, I have to agree with that in some sense. He was demanding an ID for a mere inquiry. And we've seen, we had another case not too long ago by the state police. Here's what happens. Troopers ride two-man units at night here in the state. So they stop a car. One guy, the, the guy who's on the driver's side, leans in and says, uh, hand a trooper so-and-so your ID. Or just a mere passenger. So the guy says, uh, I don't want to. Then the other one jumps in and goes, he told you to give me your ID, so hand it over. And they called it a mere inquiry. And, and essentially, mm-hmm. the warrant was served, but the fruits of the SIA search incident to arrest were suppressed, um, and, and rightfully so. And it's not their fault. You know, It's just that there's got to be a perspective and a, an exposure to know that you have to know what this stuff says. Because when you've got, got it taught by your coach or your field training officer, it doesn't mean because they have 11 years on the job and they're a good cop that they know what they're talking about legally. So again, I don't want to ramble on. I guess I'm constantly or continuously to ramble on, but I have positions on this because 
Every time something comes out, everybody goes fucking haywire. They start losing their minds. It's over. The job's over. <laughs> it's never going to be the same. You know, everything. Um, we were in uh, Chicago yesterday. So the guys from Illinois, everybody wants to move to move to Florida now. Oh, I'm not working here anymore. So I said to the guys in class, 105 people yesterday, what did the Illinois Police Reform Act even say? They said, and this is what I, the response I got in class. We have to get body cameras. Oh, and oh, like the rest of the country? And they go, yeah. I go, what else did it say? They go, really nothing else. What, what, so what are we talking about? So knee-jerk reactions get nobody anywhere. So make sure that when, you, when stuff comes out, you're reading into it. And I get that, you know, I'm reading it. I understand the legal, legal jargon regarding it. If you've just started reading this, I remember some language I saw, some Latin phrases in this, um, some language, even compel, you would, I remember years ago reading exactly what that meant to make sure I was getting it correct. But yeah, I can imagine it's probably a little confusing to read, but overall, as you get the gist of it, and generally, you can find the overall um, you know, point of the piece of review from case or the, or the, the decree that came out, the ruling. Usually in the last two paragraphs is where everything really is. First paragraph, last two. Yes. The stuff in the middle explains why they came to that conclusion, but that's where you find the meat and potatoes of things. So if you didn't read all the way down to the last paragraph before the dissenting opinion, and actually the one thing I'm going to give them credit on is they actually continued after the conclusion of it to explain. One thing, one thing these places don't do is they never really explain. Why did they leave it so ambiguous? What's the point of that? Why can't they just speak in fucking plain English? I mean, just like writing in any other context, there's well-written opinions, there's poorly written opinions, there's uh, opinions that lack important detail, some that are overly detailed. I mean, it's just... You, you think they purposely avoid detail to avoid making decisions on some things? Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Some courts decide issues, it's called deciding very narrowly. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court is famous for that uh, in oh, the yeah. last several years. Um, Why? Deciding, What's the point? The, deciding the smallest possible issue to resolve a case. Um, it's, I mean, there's, there's, I guess there's strategic reasons behind that. You don't want to decide, make huge legal proclamations um, that have, you know, wide-ranging impacts without having the lower courts have an opportunity to kind of flesh out all the details. So that's, that's why the U.S. Supreme Court does it. When you say to me, I think think Kansas versus Glover, which resolved almost nothing. It didn't resolve anything. I I I didn't really find anything really new there. And people were like, every time somebody asked that question in our Facebook group or whatever, they're like, yeah, Kansas versus Glover. I'm like, no, I didn't. Why is everybody just ready to just cite shit? Doesn't even apply. So, all right. Um, what do anything else on on this case out of New Jersey? New okay. Jersey case. Yeah, that's all I had on that one. Anything else you want to talk about before we uh, continue on? Just I just made some notes about some of the things I saw cool. in the group. Let's that do it, man. Fire away the Jesus um, of of case law. Thank you. Well, I don't I don't have the the post in front of me, but I um, you know just a few things that I noticed when we had uh, face group members wanted weighed in with some questions they wanted asked or issues addressed and. So one of them dealt with Miranda, and I'm just going to paraphrase what the question was. Can a can a lawyer invoke your your Miranda rights for you, or your family? I think it was a family. Can a family member invoke someone's Miranda rights for them? And no, they can't. Miranda rights are personal rights. Uh, the the person being interrogated has to be the one invoking the rights. Uh, that's pretty clear. The Supreme Court in a 
um, has said that numerous times. I think Moran versus Burbine is a case where a, a defense attorney was out in the lobby of the police station trying to tell the police that my client doesn't want to talk to you. And the client was upstairs in the interrogation room and the police never told the client that the lawyer was downstairs. And the Supreme Court says it, it doesn't matter. He, the client, excuse me, he, the suspect has to invoke the rights. Family members can't invoke them for you. Uh, unless it's a parent-child relationship and the, it's got a really young child and you have the parent right there during the questioning, then perhaps, but no, generally not. It has to be the okay, suspect. I have a question for you. I'm going to jump in here real quick. Uh, first of all, in New Jersey, if we are not allowed to actually, and I'm sure a lot of states follow suit, we can't interview and interrogate somebody without a guardian present who's under the age of 18. Yeah, there's many so states we that have that, yeah. Yeah, and all some states say there's going to be constitutional law answers. I'm yeah, a federal and just so we're clear, not every state is that. It's just that we are right. here. Right. Um, when you bring up that that piece of case law regarding uh, a lawyer trying to invoke his client's rights while he's in the lobby of a police department, let's switch that question around. Now you got a guy in the interview room who says, uh, "I would like to speak to my lawyer," and I'll even push it a little further. I would, I before I talk, I need to speak to my mother. We have a case in New Jersey where a guy asked to speak to his mother over and over again, and our courts interpreted it as he was looking for counsel. As nuts as that sounds, that's what they said, that he was, he asked over and over, I'll talk to you, but I got to talk to my mother first. They denied him the ability to call his mother, and our courts equated it to he was looking for counsel. So his, his Miranda's, did, you know, he was, he was invoking his rights. Yeah, that, that's clearly contrary to Supreme Court case law that says okay. that it has to be an unequivocal and unambiguous assertion of the right to counsel. Asking for your mother is not in any way, in any sense of the interpreting the English language, a request for an attorney, not under and the I federal think, constitution. And I think, I think that if you found yourself in that scenario and somebody's asking to speak to a family member, one, you could say, okay, we'll let you talk to them. But the question is, are you looking for an attorney? Do you want legal representation or you just want to talk to your mommy? Right. Because right? we can make that happen. If you just want to talk to your mommy on, on some other, uh, like, are you looking for advice, legal advice from somebody? Or are you looking to talk to your mom? And are you looking to speak with an attorney? Is she going to return, retain the attorney for you? Is that what the game is? You know, you got it. Unfortunately, we get uncomfortable as police because we're looking to get the, the problem resolved. You want those confessions. They're very powerful, especially for the rights of victims. I, it's so funny as we go into these court systems. You know, when are we thinking about this, the, 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 the actual victims of these crimes? Why is it always in, 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 in an intention to protect the criminals. So, you know, I think that's a, an important thing that could resolve that. And knowing this stuff, especially if you're a detective and you're going to be doing interviews and confession, you really should know. You know how many detectives I know that know nothing about Miranda fucking case law and confession case law? None. Interview, interrogation, confession, nothing. How do you go into that with such extreme variables, some, some major consequences if you fuck this up? Not knowing shit. That should be on day one of detective school is understanding yeah. Miranda. You know, the, the system and the programs and, and, and how things are run by these agencies, is, it's wild to me. It's wild. And that's why we lose convictions. That's why the prosecution has to dismiss things because you're doing things half-assed. They're not going to put you on trial in some bullshit case. <laughs> Many variables, but yeah, you can play out your prosecutors all you want, but are you to blame too? Do you, you serve them up some dog shit to try to argue, you know, to try to push with? I don't know. I've never been on trial, Zach. And I, maybe I should have been at times, but I've never been on trial. I was proactive. I was, I was in grand jury twice a week. I was that guy. I was in grand jury so much that the girls who worked in the office got me Christmas gifts and birthday gifts. One girl says, I have a friend of mine. I think I should set you up with her. I go, you don't want to do that. Our prosecutors are always very happy 
with the work that I served up because I followed case law. I could, I could explain why I did things. I would sit with them before the grand jury and go over prep. And I'd say, well, here's all the reasons why I did what I did. And it's right in line and cohesive to what the Supreme Court of the United States and the state constitution in New Jersey says. So, <clears throat> all right, cool. So we're there with that one with Miranda. What's your next one, Minister Miller? Uh, somebody asked about um, locked container, closed and or locked containers during a PC search. I'm assuming you're talking about a search of an automobile mm-hmm. uh, under the automobile exception. I mean, we've covered this many times on the in the group. Uh, the case law is clear. Again, we're talking about the Fourth Amendment here. Uh, if you have probable cause to search a car, you uh, you can search any container found in that car that could house the item you're looking for. Locked or unlocked is not a distinction. Doesn't matter. Um, you know, if, if you go all the way back to Carol, if you remember the facts of that case, they found the alcohol inside the upholstery of the seat. I mean, they cut the upholstery and peeled it back and found the alcohol there. I mean, that's, uh, it wasn't a locked container, but they sure certainly destroyed uh, part of the property to access it and the court upheld it. So, uh, United I want to toss in Houghton, right? Well, I want to toss in Wyoming versus Houghton as well. Ross to an extension was, of Ross. Yeah, yeah. Ross was the game changer. Ross was the one that, uh, because the rule before Ross was uh, it may you may not be able to search containers. Chadwick and Sanders uh, were the cases before that. But Ross changed the game. Uh, it makes it very clear all containers are subject to being searched. Halton says we don't have to inquire about who owns each particular piece of each each container we want to search. Uh, if we've got PC to search it, you can search the entire vehicle, regardless of who, who you believe the owner is. I actually haven't, you know, I've researched probably 30 30- plus states cases now. And I, I look at the Ross rulings and see if they have anything that differs. If I t- Look, I try to stay in my lane as much as I can in, in the class. I have not found a state yet that says once you find a locked item, you have to stop and go get a search warrant. There was that one job out of uh, Iowa, I think we talked about, where uh, it was argued as search incident to arrest. They tried to argue under Gantt for this lockbox, but they had PC to search the car and the court actually said, you should have argued it under Ross. You didn't. And we have to rule under as the SIA. It was no good. So a guy comes up to me in class and it's probably looks like this and says, you know, we can't search locked containers. And I said, well, let me let me look through it. It sounds a little strange, especially in Iowa. It's generally conservative. They're pretty much in line with the Fourth Amendment. They don't depart. And uh, I just find that hard to believe in a state that seems generally conservative. And that's what it was. They argued it incorrectly in, in court. And, you know, if you've seen before and we talked about this, the court suggested what you should have done, but, but you didn't. So we have to rule on what you what you've argued. Yeah, the only states where you can't search locked containers is, are the states that have limited limits on the automobile exception, and, and mm-hmm. those are the ones we all are familiar with: um, Pennsylvania, Montana, Alaska, Hawaii. Those that that require true exigencies, but um, the vast majority there's about ten of those those states. The rest of them, New uh, Hampshire, New Hampshire is another New one. New Hampshire doesn't have an automobile exception at all. Yep. Okay. Yeah. New um, Mexico. In Mexico, Montana, there's a few others I'm missing here, um, but the vast majority of them, it doesn't matter if the container's locked or not, you can search. The case law is clear. Yeah, I I find it interesting that, um, you know, in these states that don't have the automobile exception, they say, oh, you need true agency. I'm going to warn everybody. I worked my whole career in New Jersey 14 years without the automobile exception. And trying to prove true exigencies is very difficult. So if you're in a state where you don't have the automobile exception, you know, you're really, really going to have to understand what a true agency is and uh, they can't be made up or, or, or developed by the police officer and they're hard to come by, you know, 
far majority of the ones that people tried to do it, they were like, no, no. There were some that passed muster, but not many. Um, So, you know, you really have to have a true agency. And we're talking about some of the the, the factors they considered in New Jersey were like, it's a two-man agency. One guy's on the job. If we take him off, there's only one guy left to patrol. Or it's going to take two guys off the road to go get a search warrant. (laughs) There'll be no cops on the road. Things like that. So where I worked, we had 16, 22 doubled up cars at night. We never get away with saying that we didn't have enough personnel. You know, we got guys inside. We got jailers. We got people all over. We got, on top of that, we probably have at all times four to six detectives working, four to five sergeants on the road, and two shift commanders. We had overlapping shift commanders that worked together. Big agency, right? 200-man agency. So we could never get away with, with traffic division. We had all sorts of people out and about. You know, at times, I, I, I bet you at times, it's, it was no question we'd have 50-plus cops on the road for a 26-square-mile town. So uh, that's just some food for thought on some of these inherent agencies. The only way to know what was accepted and what wasn't is to research case law. People ask me questions in class. Here's a question. Guys, listen, I'll answer them. But if you want to get your questions resolved, start proactively reading case law and your questions will diminish. You'll have answers as you read. Oh, shit. I didn't know we could do that, right? So, sorry, Zach. Oh, I'm talking sorry. too much. We're good. We're good. <clears throat> Wait, are we still friends? Um, I, I think so, unless I missed something. It's phenomenal. That's great, man. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. God, I hope so. Okay. I, I don't know if I'd be more devastated with uh, losing a family member than losing you as a friend. You know what I mean? Like, they'd be in the same ballpark. You're, you mean a lot to me, Zachary Miller. Let's, let's not have to cross that bridge then. We're good. Um, are you coming for all five days for the conference? I will. I will be there Sunday night all the way through oh, Friday. Nice, I think dude. I'm speaking Friday morning now is what I'm Oh, doing. amazing, dude. Yep. Yeah, so I'll be there all week. We're going to do some fun stuff. All right, cool. What's the next one you got? Um, somebody just wrote Peyton versus New York. Uh, I'm assuming you're asking about uh, arrest warrants entering a residence. Again, we've uh, talked about this many times, but we'll, we'll do it again. Uh, it's pretty simple. Peyton uh, suggested and then Stegald kind of firmed it up for us. But uh, if you've got a, an arrest warrant, plus a reason to believe the arrestee is inside a particular house and a reason to believe that's where he actually lives, you can use that arrest warrant as your authority to go inside and look for him. And that only applies at the place we have a reason to believe where the person lives. The address on the arrest warrant, it doesn't matter. And is inside. Not only lives, but he's actually there. Yeah. So you think he's reasonably inside he's, for, based on fact. Yeah, reasonably he's there. Uh-huh. And reasonably lives there. And you can't, yeah. And you've got to articulate both of those things. Uh, and, and you can't just, because I get that question a lot. Hey, can we just go into the house looking for him? No, you got to have reason to believe that he's there. So yeah. there are factors you got to consider. Maybe neighbor, we talked about this neighbor testimony. You yeah. go around, hey, did you see Pete? Yeah, no, he's in the house. We saw him walking about four o'clock. Pete's car's outside. Um, you know, maybe it's the winter and all cars are iced over, but Pete's car has clearly been driven. There's no ice on his car or snow. Um, you know, a lot, maybe. <laughs> Here's a, here's, a, here's a probable cause. Pete looks out the window at you, you know? There you, yeah. He's inside, right? <laughs> right. One guy asked me this. This was an interesting one. The guy asked me, and I think it was, and I don't mean to pick on the guy. This is a little rookie-ish when he came up with this idea that he's been watching some fucking movies lately. Did you get that? Did he ever message you? I told him to message you. I don't think, uh, yes. I don't know. He said, uh, we went to a house. The guy's there. He refused to come out. Does Peyton allow me to cut the electric to the house? Um, and I said to yeah, him, I think I did hear this one. Uh, Peyton. Yeah, is- so I, 
I said, you know, look, it's like an Iranian hostage situation where we're cutting electric. What was the warrant for? Domestic battery. You know, listen, if you're, if you're in a situation where somebody's not coming out and they're barricaded subject in some sense, you know, you have the authority to enter. If he's in the house and it's his house, you know, now the question is, is, is it a SWAT call out? You know, if, that's, if you've got to get him into custody because of the inherent danger uh, coming forward, yeah. you still have the authority to go dissipate with time. That's your warrant to go in. But yeah, you're getting to a SWAT situation. And I said, how, how on God's green earth are you going to cut the power to this house? Like, I don't, well, how does it even work? Because I don't think you could just get up on the thing, hit it with some fucking pliers and cut that shit, right? It's not the no, movies. No. You'd have to get some kind of, I've never even seen SWAT teams cut power. You know, they don't, they don't cut power and they're going to knock a house down. Uh, we've, we've done it a couple of times, but you, you do it through the electric company. You don't. Yeah, you got to call and they got to shut it off via computer. Yeah. 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 I don't know how he's going to cheat. And by the way, wouldn't you think you need judicial authorization to cut power to a house? Um, Minus exigencies, right? If you had exigencies, different story, yeah. right? You got to save lives. I'm not sure. I mean, it depends on how many other people you're affecting by turning the power. Depends on how wide of a swath. Perhaps we're we're uh, we're talking about, but I don't think as a matter of routine we should be doing that. No. Legalities wise, you think you would need authorization? Like if you were going to do a warrant and a rip on a house, would you have to include that with the judge? Say, Your Honor, we also want to cut power to the house. You got seven cameras and a, and a whatever. I don't. I don't know that it would require judicial authorization. I mean, the the manner of the search has to be reasonable reasonable as well. I don't know. I'd have the to scope think a little bit more. On that. Okay. Uh, we the manner in which we do it. Uh, if we use a SWAT team to go serve a misdemeanor trespassing warrant, uh, that could be an unreasonable search, no matter how search certainly are the guys inside. So. Yeah. yeah I mean, if you're going to use force would, like that, you've got to you got to articulate in your warrant affidavit. Just that there's some kind of, yeah, you got just like you got to you got to yeah. have specific and articulable facts to explain that this is a dangerous situation we're going into and we need to do maybe a no-knock or off hours uh whatever right. it may be right what's what do we got let's do one more one more um uh warrantless uh, talking about um a hot pursuit into a house um again this is hot pursuit is uh some of it some people regard it as an exigency um if you're chasing if you if the person you're chasing is a felony suspect we're chasing somebody to arrest him for a felony and he runs inside of a house the case law is clear you can continue the pursuit this is this is without a warrant you have no arrest warrant no search warrant can we continue the pursuit in the house santana united states versus santana says yes that's clearly uh you can't defeat a lawful arrest by just going inside your house um now if it's a misdemeanor you're trying to arrest the person for and they run inside of a house uh, generally the misdemeanor by itself is not going to be sufficient. You'd have to have some other exigency factors. This was Lang versus California that came out a couple of months ago from the Supreme court. Um, but it doesn't take a whole lot to have an additional exigency factor, you know, like, uh, got a reason to believe he may gain a weapon by going inside the house. Uh, he may escape by going inside of the house. I mean, that's the whole point of him running. I would think you'd have that exigency in most cases anyway. So. Yeah. It's pretty Good simple. Stuff. Yeah. If you're chasing somebody and they run inside of a house. How about this? Let me toss it up there for everybody. You're going to love this shit, right? How about you got a, a warrant for a misdemeanor for a guy. You see him. He starts running. You got a, you have a warrant mm -hmm. for a misdemeanor offense. How does that change it? If he's running inside of his house, 
then Peyton takes over. Now, now we know he's in there because we saw him go in there. Uh, and as long as I reasonably believe it's going. his house, I go in. Yeah. And then, if, yeah. then of course, yeah. if he's running inside someone else's house, you could argue that that might that by itself may be an exigency. You know, it could be another mm-hmm. crime being committed. Something How about that. Serious. Whose house is he going into? We don't even know whose house that is. What if he's going into kidnap people? I've got so to stop that. Be a, yeah, burglary in progress or something. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I don't think we're being uh, presumptuous, or uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but I don't think it's unreasonable to to articulate that these are real criminals in the field who are uh, at times, if they're not going to jail, going to make irrational decisions, and people could get hurt. And it's our job to make sure that people don't get hurt. So. Well, this is a great session, man. I, I missed you tremendously. Did we miss anything? No, there was a couple others. But, I mean, there's probably more now, but we can we can go that. We can do those on another uh, another podcast. Yeah, cool, man. Uh, you know, I have a very, very special. I know you have. I know you got somewhere you need to be. So, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to say. I don't want to keep it. Yeah. Tommy Lauren at four o'clock for a Zoom prior to the conference. Just saying. From what I understand, she's requested me specifically and said that handsome fella from uh, Instagram that does the funny videos. Uh, I need to speak with him immediately. I said, eh, all right. You know, t- I tell her what time she wanted to do. They go 3.30. I go, you tell her I got four o'clock on the calendar. I'm not, I got time for this. There you go. Laying down I, the law. Yeah, that's it. You know, I'm just, I'm being the alpha to begin with in this relationship. I just want to make that very, very clear. All right. <laughs> all right. Anyway, hey guys, I appreciate everybody tuning into our podcast. You know, Zach, did you know we have over a million downloads now? I did not know that. Yeah, um, we're really rocking it. Brother, we've been doing this for 20 years. What did we start this a couple months ago, four or five months ago? We got to start getting serious with this. Yeah. You know, a million downloads. So we appreciate everybody tuning in, listening to. Hopefully you're finding value. We'll continue to bring this stuff to you. Uh, Thestreetcop.com is our website. You can find Zach's classes, constitutional policing, badass. I mean, I literally people message me after. Not every class, but your class, I get pounded. That shit was amazing. That guy's unbelievable. So I can't emphasize the new understanding you would have of case law once you taken Zach's two-day course. Uh, check out our website for that, streetcop.com. And then also our Facebook group, Street Cop Training. And then we are on Instagram and LinkedIn and all the other stuff. And this is the last one I'm going to say it. Street Cop Conference is less than two weeks away. We already talked about that. Without further ado, appreciate it. And everybody have a great night. Okay. See you next week. All right, dude. See you. All right, man. Later.